0: Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Form Infectious Diseases, and on today's podcast, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Martin Blazer. He is Muriel and George Singer Professor of Medicine and Professor of Microbiology at NYU and Director of the Human Microbiome Program. He is also author of the book, Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues. Marty, thanks very much for joining us today.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: So, Marty, you've been a longtime leader in the study of the microbiome and its impact on human health. Can you, as an expert in the field, give us briefly what you think is the best definition of the term? Because there's a lot of confusion about what it actually means.
1: Yeah, well... When I was being educated, uh, like you, the term that people used was normal flora. These are the normal, and I put that in quotations, the normal microbes that live in the human body, in the GI tract, in the vagina, on the skin, in the mouth, everywhere where there's a normal flora. That's what we now call the microbiota. And microbiota is a better term because flora actually refers to plants, and the bacteria and fungi are not plants. And it's also understanding that this is a very important ecological niche. We know that every animal has its own microbiota. And as far back into evolution as we can trace animals, they've all had a microbiota.
0: So obviously, the development of antibiotics was a huge advance in therapeutics, and you allude to that when you start your book. And we've known for some time that resistance to antibiotics has been a huge problem, and that's one of the issues of overuse. But on to the effect of antibiotics on the microbiota of humans, was there a sentinel moment in your research when you realized that antibiotics might have a broader impact on human health than a negative one as well as the beneficial one? I
1: think there have been a few important moments. In 1979, uh, I became an EIS officer at the CDC in the enteric disease branch and I was assigned the salmonella desk. In doing that work, I learned that most of the antibiotics used in the United States were used on the farm for the purpose of growth promotion and we at the cdc were very concerned about this because of the problem of the transfer of antibiotic resistant organisms from farm animals and products of animal origin to humans and so there was a big focus on this now fast forward about twenty five years one day i was talking to a medical resident when i was on the faculty at nyu and i was telling the resident about growth promotion and all of a sudden, the light bulb went off. I thought to myself, well, the the fact that farmers are doing it so much, and they're doing it all over the world, is because growth promotion works. And then the question is, why does feeding antibiotics to farm animals promote their growth? Why does it make them fatter? And for me, there was just like a, a moment uh, when I thought, well, if if farmers feed antibiotics to young farm animals and change their growth and development. What are we doing to our children? That's where I got the idea that maybe antibiotics could have an effect on how children are developing metabolically and immunologically and possibly even cognitively. So what proportion
0: of antibiotic use is now uh, in livestock? Is it something like 70 to 80 percent?
1: The industry isn't exactly interested in fessing up how much they're using, but the estimate is that 70 to 80 percent of all the antibiotics used in the United States are used on the farm essentially for the purpose of growth promotion, and this has been going on for decades. And again, they use it because it works. It increases feed efficiency, the ability of farm animals to convert food calories into body mass. That's what farmers want to do. They want to grow their animals
0: faster. So moving on to that topic, we undoubtedly have an epidemic of obesity and diabetes and related disorders here in the United States, and it's increasingly being exported globally, it seems. In your opinion, how strong is the evidence that antibiotic use is responsible or at least partially responsible for this problem?
1: The short answer is that there is a lot of observational data, correlative data, pointing a finger that antibiotics could play a role in the epidemics of obesity. But we began doing studies almost 10 years ago in mice to test the hypothesis that early-life antibiotic exposure could have an effect on mouse development. And we've published several papers now in Nature, and Cell, really high-impact journals that provide evidence that early-life antibiotics are changing the course of development in mice, increasing adiposity, and also changing immunologic parameters. So the question is, why does giving antibiotics fatten up farm animals, and why does it fatten up mice and possibly kids? The long answer gets back to the fundamental nature of the microbiome. The reason that I wrote the book, Missing Microbes, is because I'm alarmed that there's increasing evidence to support the hypothesis that our microbiome is ancient, but is changing, that we're changing the bedrock of human development, uh, and that has consequences we have been losing biodiversity we have been losing organisms and the population structure of our microbiome has changed And it suggests the idea that every course of antibiotics potentially might have some cost to a person taking it. We always thought you take an antibiotic, things are abnormal for a short time, and then you kind of bounce back to normal. That's been the conventional wisdom for decades. In fact, nobody really had the tools to look at it carefully. And now when we begin to look at it carefully, we find evidence that it's not true. And my hypothesis is that every time we take an antibiotic, we probably send some organisms to extinction. They're not going to bounce back because they've gone to zero. The other worst part about the hypothesis is that it's cumulative across generations. That is, if mothers lose an organism, they don't have an organism to pass on to their daughters. And their daughters, if they lose some more organisms, they'll have fewer to pass on to the next generation.
0: And you mentioned also, of course, that the increased use of c-sections at the time of delivery is reducing biodiversity as well.
1: Again, this is something that we doctors weren't really thinking about, that there is a relatively orderly intergenerational transfer of microbes from moms to their babies to the next generation. This has been going on since time immemorial. It begins essentially when the water breaks and the baby is introduced to the world of bacteria and as they descend through the birth canal they're covered by the mom's bacteria. Well, with C-section, that doesn't happen. And so the founding microbiota is different. And recent work that's been published and some work that we're doing suggests that difference in the early life microbiota, that can last for months during really critical periods of development.
0: So if I'm going to play the skeptic and say, well, why isn't it just the use of corn syrup and exportation of fast food and snacks? People will cite other reasons why there's been this increase in obesity and and diabetes, etc.
1: Yes. It doesn't mean that the change in the microbiota is the exclusive cause. In fact, we believe that these are multifactorial. And we've done experiments in mice where, to summarize, if we feed mice on a high-fat diet, they get fat. If we put them on antibiotics they get fat and if we put them on the two together they get very fat so the effects are at least additive that's point number one point number two is that fast food and sedentary lifestyle that will explain obesity but it doesn't explain asthma doesn't explain celiac disease or peanut allergy what impresses me is that we've had all these epidemics that are ongoing essentially since World War II in parallel Type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, and celiac disease, and food allergies, and metabolic diseases like obesity and type 2 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, autism, the list goes on. And so either there are 10 diseases and each one has its own cause, which is rising in parallel over the calendar. Or there's one thing that is underlying all of it that is fueling all these diseases. And that's my hypothesis, that it's the change in our ancestral microbiota where we've lost organisms, which is why I called the book Missing Microbes.
0: So let's talk for a moment about the allergic diseases and asthma and peanut allergy, etc. There's an often cited hygiene hypothesis that has gained some popularity. Is is that the same as what you're describing or is it fundamentally different? (laughs)
1: There is some overlap, but I think it's fundamentally different. The hygiene hypothesis, as many practitioners describe, suggests that it's good for kids to play in the dirt, to be on the farm, to be licked by their dog, and things like that. And my basic idea is that stuff is not very important it's the organisms in the soil are adapted uh, for living in soil they're not adapted for living in the human body and when they enter the human body they're pretty rapidly eliminated by our normal microbiota they don't like invaders of the turf so what I'm concerned about is the loss of our ancient organisms the organisms that we've had since time immemorial which are going away and in that regard that's where my ideas really started to form which is about 20 years ago when I was working on Helicobacter pylori which was discovered twice. It was discovered in the 19th century. Everybody had it. Nobody could isolate it, so it was forgotten. And then in the 20th century, by that time, only half the people had it. And there, an association could be made with certain diseases like ulcer disease and gastric cancer, which we were very much involved in. So helicobacter was rediscovered in the 20th century as a pathogen, but more and more, my colleagues and I found evidence that Helicobacter pylori is an ancient organism that was disappearing, and this was the first disappearing organism because we never really thought that normal flora would disappear, just as people didn't think that animals would go extinct. So, once I understood that Helicobacter was an ancient organism that was normal microbiota or normal flora that was disappearing. Then I thought, if one organism is disappearing, maybe some others are disappearing as well. And that's where the ideas came from.
0: And, of course, there have been consequences to the eradication of helicobacter.
1: There have been consequences in both directions. There's good news, and that is that helicobacter is the major cause of gastric cancer in the world, without question. So when helicobacter is going away, so is gastric cancer. And ulcer disease is going away as well. But other diseases are rising. In particular, reflux esophagitis really got reported in the medical literature in the 1930s. And Barrett's esophagus was first reported in 1950. And adenocarcinoma of the esophagus, which was a rare disease, began to rise around 1970 in the United States. And now in Caucasian men and now even in African-American men, that has surpassed squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus. So it's a rising cancer. It's the fastest rising cancer in many countries.
0: Yeah, it has really been remarkable to see that change over time. With a large thoracic surgery program here at this hospital, it's been quite evident. Can I ask you a bit about a more obvious example, which of course is something that all infectious disease doctors deal with regularly, which is Clostridium difficile. It's been shown conclusively in refractory cases that uh, fecal transplant is the best therapy. I don't think anyone would deny that at this point, despite all the difficulties of doing it. How have these studies influenced the public perception of the microbiome, and do you have any thoughts about the prevention and treatment of C. diff and where we're heading in the future?
1: Sure. Uh, C. diff causes a very severe disease, pseudomembranous colitis, uh, a disease that can sometimes be lethal, and what we know is that C. diff Is usually set off by a course of antibiotics it can be set off by other perturbations as well but let's just make it simple and the the idea is that somebody takes antibiotics it suppresses certain normal organisms and either they have C. diff endogenously or they acquire it from their neighbor in the hospital and now that organism blooms it produces toxins and and makes somebody ill and the general treatment has been antibiotics, but antibiotics are sometimes successful, but oftentimes not because the problem with C. diff is that the ecology of the gut is abnormal. And that's what allows C. diff to bloom. And so the antibiotics which suppress C. diff are also suppressing other organisms. So it's not surprising they fail. So what fecal transplant has shown us is that if you take fecal material from virtually any normal person, that will restore health. So it means that there's some kind of functional structure in the gut that controls C. diff. And uh, when you transplant somebody else's microbiota, the recipient has a microbiota that looks very much like the donor. And that, in almost every case, suppresses C. diff. So that's a very extreme case. It's an acute disease. We know the cause. It has a markedly abnormal microbiota, what's called a dysbiosis, Uh, and the treatment works. And so that's a very important proof of principle that changing the ecology of the microbiota, in this case of the gut, will cure disease. How applicable will that be to other diseases, chronic diseases? That remains to be seen.
0: There's been already some controlled studies in this area, in particular in things like inflammatory bowel disease. But what about in conditions that may be more remotely connected? to the intestinal tract so for example these things we talked about allergic diseases celiac disease obesity and diabetes
1: you know at this point there's no clear evidence of benefit but these are very early days and it's possible that there will be benefit one day but if we look at c diff what's happening is that researchers and companies are coming up with alternatives to fecal transplant and fecal transplant Is definitely a good idea in people with this very serious illness but the feces are undefined and there's of course with any biologic there's a risk of uh, infectious hazard that we're transplanting something that we don't recognize that could be dangerous so I think within five years there probably will not be very many fecal transplants anymore for C. diff but we'll have moved on to the next generation of therapies And I think that suggests where we might be going with some of these other diseases. If we can understand the disruption in the ecology, we have a chance that we can restore it to normal. Now the caveat is that some of these diseases may be developmental and that there's a developmental window, maybe very early in life, for example, and once the window is closed, it may be hard to reverse it. We don't know.
0: So thanks to work that you've done and other people in the field, you know, it is starting to get a fair amount of traction that antibiotics could be harmful beyond just the cause of resistance. And it seems that demand for them, and this is anecdotal, is declining. What's been your perception of this issue? And then also how do things differ here compared with other countries?
1: Well, I hope it's declining. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. And some of the things that I point out in the book is that In the United States, there's tremendous variability in the use of antibiotics. For example, in the South, antibiotic use per capita is about 50% higher than it is in the West. And this is across tens of millions of people. It's really a big phenomenon. If we compare antibiotic use in the U.S. to Sweden, the Swedes are using 40% of the antibiotics we're using. The Swedes are not dying any younger, and there are no epidemics of childhood deafness or childhood sepsis in Sweden. But they're getting away with much less antibiotics than we are, so they're analyzing the situation more carefully. We know that, especially for outpatient illnesses, there's a range of severity from very severely acutely ill people where the high suspicion is that it's a bacterial infection. Those children or adults must get antibiotics. And then there's another end of the spectrum where the probability that it's a life-threatening bacterial infection is extremely low. And most people would agree they shouldn't. And then in between, there's a huge gray area. And some practitioners are cutting that gray area in different places. And I'm trying to move us doctors toward that white area to using less antibiotics in those marginal cases. Because if antibiotics were free then why not use them? But if they potentially have biological costs, then we have to take those costs into account. And that should influence our prescribing decisions. And I also wanted to inform the public that antibiotics aren't free so they don't pressure their doctor or feel deprived if the doctor says your child just has a mild illness and it's not a good idea to take an antibiotic.
0: Yeah. So Marty, I I wonder if you've seen any people taking your views or views of other researchers into areas where you don't think the data are strong the association between alteration in the microbiome and certain diseases
1: we have millions of people every day taking probiotics they can buy them at the drug store uh, at the health food store at the grocery store there's a huge number of products people are popping them in their mouth under the belief that it's going to improve their health most of these haven't been tested at all and in fact we're not even sure what's the content or the efficacy so we're a little schizophrenic about what we're doing. There are many people who embrace the idea, the concept of probiotic, and I think there will be great probiotics coming along in the future that will be determined using science and tested based on clinical research, so we'll know what they do.
0: But as you state, they're unlikely to be the ones you buy over the counter at your local pharmacy.
1: They're unlikely today. Now, in the hundreds of products, there might be a few good ones, but I don't know which ones they are.
0: Well, Marty, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's really a fascinating topic. So I've been speaking with Dr. Marty Blazer, professor of microbiology at NYU and director of the Human Microbiome Program, as well as the author of the book, Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues. It is a terrific read. And Marty, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Paul.